0: Hello and welcome to Portrait of a Londoner. I'm Katrina. Today with Moona, we talk to Nick Merriman. Nick is CEO of the Horniman Museum in Forest Hill. In this episode we talk to Nick about how to increase access and diversity in the museum world and we also talk to him about his childhood as well as his current influences. We really hope you enjoy listening to this episode. Nick, welcome to Portrait of a Londoner. Thank you. Um, You've spent your working life working in museums. Could we just start by telling us what you love about museums and why they're so important to you?
1: Uh, I think it goes right back to when I was um, a young child. My parents uh, both left school at 16, no books in the house, but my dad really had an interest in old stuff. And connecting through history that way. He used to take me around the junk shops of Birmingham where I used to grow up and that gave me a real interest in the way in which objects give you a tangible link to the past and past lives, particularly ordinary lives. I was never particularly interested in the finest art and the finest uh, decor- decorative materials. I started doing metal detecting when I was about 15, 16 and then went to, started going on an archaeological dig at weekends from I think 16 onwards. And then You know the 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 thrill of finding something with a trowel that hasn't seen the light of day for two thousand years. This was a Roman site. um, Really inspired me, and I kind of drifted into museums, having studied archaeology as a way of, I suppose, getting a job in doing something I was I was passionate about. So it's it's that tangibility. The concreteness of them and the way in which they can link to past people really.
2: One of the themes about um, one of the most recent themes that you kind of focus a lot of your work on is around increasing accessibility to museums. Why do you think access is so important?
1: Well, for me and my my PhD actually was was about all of this. Things like the past is of interest to pretty well everybody, and places like museums get public funding, most of them, in order to be accessible to all. I mean, it's, it's, it's called market failure. In other words, you put public money into things that where the, the market can't provide full access to. And for me, it's a, it's a matter of ethical principle that the past, as represented in all the collections in museums, is the collective heritage of everybody, and we receive public funding to make it accessible to everybody. So it must be the mission of museums to make themselves uh, available and accessible to everybody, if possible. I mean, that's not always practical in, in you know, that some people have physical mobility problems and so on, but... The aspiration must be that these public assets are available for everybody.
0: Um, You mentioned your PhD then. So your PhD thesis was called Beyond the Glass Case and you performed a nationwide survey and you evaluated public use of and attitudes towards museums. Can you tell us what was the most important finding of that piece of research?
1: I suppose it was that people were all pretty well interested in the past, but not everybody expressed that through visiting museums. And sometimes people have said, oh, well, you know, some people are just not interested in museums and what they have to offer. What my research showed was that everybody's potentially interested, but there are cultural barriers erected and it, I was quite influenced by a French theorist called Pierre Bourdieu who talked about the role of education and cultural background on people 's aspirations and For people who don 't participate in things like museums, uh, it, they often justify that as a choice i 'm not interested in that it 's not for me mm. but actually what 's happened is that their whole upbringing in education has led to a self exclusion. Mm. Because the cultural sort of signifiers for some people of museums are that you have to be educated, they're intimidating, they're high culture, they're off-putting. But that's not a, a sort of a physical or biological thing. It's a cultural construct which um, excludes large sections of the population. And I was I was very interested to understand what those cultural barriers are and how we might begin to dismantle them.
0: You've mentioned that people are interested but they may not access museums. But how do you think, you know, maybe thinking about children, how How can people actually benefit from going to a museum?
1: Well, one of the things I've found in my previous career, particularly when I was in Manchester and now more recently at the Horniman, is that if you can get people over the threshold who don't normally come, actually they say, oh, this is actually really nice. And and first of all, I mean, it's great fun. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's the fundamental thing for children. But there are all sorts of other things. I mean, uh, museums, there's a really good bank of actually clinical evidence now to look at that shows the health and well-being benefits of participation in cultural activities, including museum visiting. Most museum visiting is also social. Even if you go on your own, you can talk to the visitor hosts there, you can interact. It means you get out. uh, And that's really good for people who are elderly and isolated or, or young and isolated, for that matter. Volunteering in museums is even better and there are bespoke programmes of cultural prescribing to try and get people off medication and into social activities like museum volunteering. Uh, Museums are good educationally, obviously, they've always been. Places like the Horniman have always had a schools programme and they can give educational experiences for for all, but including children for whom kind of written approaches to education are perhaps not the main way in which they, they gain
2: So I recently read um, a gov.uk survey which looked into visits to museums and galleries and it reported that in 2018 half of white people had visited a museum or gallery compared with a third of black people and nearly 44% of Asian people. Are these numbers representative of the Horniman would you say?
1: The, the the horniman is in uh, i think a unique position and I've, I've never in my career in, in, encountered another cultural institution like it in that 30 years ago it had a much more diverse audience than it does today wow now i think the re- now <clears throat> there's a couple of things to say in relation to that 30 years ago it had about 200,000 visits visits a year last year we had 946,000 30 years ago, according to the statistics I've seen, about 40% of the visitors were black and minority ethnic. Last year, it was 18%. Now, there are probably greater numbers of black and minority ethnic visitors now, but proportionally, they're fewer because the big growth has been, as Forest Hill has gentrified, the museum the, the local audience, which used to come, and the local audience still does come, but it's a less mixed audience than it was 30 or 40 years ago. The
2: demographic has changed majorly. The demographic
1: has So that's quite a challenge mm. because it means that if we're going to diversify that, that audience, which we do want to do for all the reasons I've mentioned already, it's harder because we're going to have to cast further afield. And of course, you've only ever got 100%. So if we want to increase percentages of black and minority ethnic, then... We're going to have to somehow decrease relatively other proportions of the of the audience who are the ones who are keen to come so that's our big challenge and we're taking a 10-year approach to it but the, the broader point is that yes th- th- there have been improvements certainly over the last 30 or 40 years in museums and their accessibility but there's still a long way to go and it's particularly acute in London because of London's very mixed population. So compare it with the situation in Manchester that I had, uh, I suppose, 14 years ago. Now, when I started there, Manchester Museum had a very unmixed, fairly fairly sort of undiverse audience. Over 10 years, uh, we managed to get it to pretty well match the diversity of the greater Manchester population. But that was in a context of uh, nearly tripling the visitor numbers. So there was kind of room for growth.
0: Yeah. So that, that, that's something that we were going to bring up, actually. So before joining the Horniman Uh, in 2018, just of people listening on to where you were director of the Manchester Museum. And during that time, you led this major programme of public engagement. Are you planning to use some of the same kind of strategy and methodology that you used in Manchester at the Horniman?
1: So in Manchester, as I said, we had a relatively low base and could expand the numbers. Also, Manchester Museum is part of the University of Manchester on the Oxford Road. So there's a kind of university campus around it unusually for a university campus, it's surrounded by some really diverse and quite challenged communities, Moss Side, Hume, Rush Home, et cetera, et cetera. So there was a very diverse audience on the doorstep that could actually walk there, but weren't coming. And by taking a long-term tenure approach to understanding those audiences who weren't coming, doing outreach work in local schools and communities putting on programming that would actually be of interest, having ambassadors, doing social media and so on, we managed to change it. So that'd be the same tactic at the Horniman, but it's it's going to be harder because of the already large... We don't want to double our numbers to 2 million because we couldn't cope.
2: Just kind of linking to that, I suppose, um, some of the work that's happening and events that are happening. You've got a Crossing Borders, uh, Common Ground event happening this month, which is, will basically be run performances. The event will be run by people who are newly arrived to the area. So that's one a really great way that you're kind of dealing with this, the issues and kind of making you know, bringing people in. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: The Horniman, um, because of its anthropology collections in particular, has always wanted to connect with uh, diaspora communities because they're a natural constituency. And part of that has included uh, a fairly long-term programme of engaging with refugees and and recent arrivals because they're a, an obvious audience, but also as part of making them feel welcome and, and settling them in the, in the locality. Because it's only, I think, if people see themselves represented or can represent themselves in the museum that they'll begin to feel that the museum is, is a place for them. So that's absolutely what we want to do. So, And because we have our gardens as well as the museum and because we have both a bandstand and a musical instrument collection, performance, music, dance, drama, spoken word has always been a really important part of our programme because that's easy for different cultures to um, engage with and is accessible for a wide variety of audiences. So the Horniman's clearly always not been just a museum, but it's a kind of hybrid thing with the gardens and it's, it's almost like a cultural centre as well, given we can provide a platform for lots of different art forms as well as the traditional museum-type activities.
0: Are there any um, museums that inspire you or guide you in this quest to diversify the Horniman
1: I I guess there are a few over the years that have have influenced me. I mean, going right back when I was starting out in museums, the Anacostia Neighbourhood Museum in Washington, D.C. is a branch of the Smithsonian, which is kind of a bit like the British Museum, but magnified, but in a pretty well 100% black neighbourhood. So it was like the British Museum having a branch in I mean, there isn't an equivalent, but let's say Brixton, even though Brixton is actually much more gentrified (laughs) than it used to be. And they were doing really quite radical programming to engage the African-American audience. So it was showing that museums don't have to do just traditional museum things. There's a lot of very good regional museums that are engaging audiences uh, very directly. Derby Museum, for example, is doing some fabulous engagement and outreach work. Glasgow museums have always been brilliant at engaging their local population. So Kelvin Grove is a huge, massive edifice, but it's really owned by the people of Glasgow and gets, you know, well over a million visitors uh, a year. So, I mean, uh, the the museum world's a fairly small one and the directors all tend to know each other and um, pinch each other's good ideas, you know, which is a a form of flattery. (laughs) A form of flattery, exactly. But I have to say, I mean... And I can still see this, say this being relatively new at the Horniman, the Horniman's always been very good at community engagement and, and audience development, particularly deep long term engagement with community partners in a way that can make a real difference to individual people's lives. So that you know, our own history is a source of inspiration as well.
2: I, you did touch on this earlier, but I'd like to go back a bit and talk a little bit about your um, upbringing and childhood. Mm-hmm. You grew up in Sutton Coalfield near Birmingham, and you became a collector of glass bottles. What was it about collecting? Because it's quite an unusual thing for a young kid to uh, to be a collector of. What was what was the inspiration behind yeah, that?
1: Well, uh, as I mentioned, I think it was kind of being able to spend time with my dad. It could almost have been anything, I guess. I just followed his interest because I, I think I. I must ask him, but at some point he started taking me with him as he went around just picking up old bits and pieces. And then it became uh, a real passion of my own. So I didn't, I moved away from antiques into antiquities. And it was, I first went on a dig when I was, I think, 15 in Castle Bromwich, which is a really unprepossessing part of Birmingham where there are car factories and things. And there was, but there was a medieval moated manor house being excavated we didn't find anything really but i really enjoyed just you know getting my hands in the dirt and connecting to nature i suppose as well and being outdoors uh, and, and also actually there was a kind of slight financial bit with collecting as well because you can actually i could actually make some money out of buying and selling bottles and nice. bits and pieces like that as well so when you when you're a kid with pocket money that's quite attractive as, yeah. as, as well
0: so you've mentioned your dad how did the other members of your immediate family influence you
1: Not so much, I would say. I was the oldest of of three. So in terms of my career, I don't think at all. Although it's quite interesting that uh, the three of us have all gone into the useless arts and culture as opposed to sort of financially sustainable activities like being in a law or something, which is what my dad wanted me to go into, first of all. My mum was a housewife. I mean, she was she looked after us, uh, basically, and made sure we were clothed and fed and all that sort of thing. My dad was the one that was always out you know, he was out at work or out when when I was quite young. He was playing rugby and so on, or he was out at junk shops. And I guess it was a way of just connecting with him because yeah. I saw my mum all the time, really.
0: Yeah. Well, we wondered, you know, looking at your career, whether just from a broader perspective, like it seems that you want to use your position in the, you know, to, to help people um, access things which you've been able to access that other people couldn't access. Was there anything else about your you know your early life your immediate family that gave you kind of a feeling of wanting to serve people or help people in some way
1: well i think what what it what did dawn on me over time was how unfair it was that my parents well they'd left school at 16 but it wasn't really a choice because it was expected that they would go out and earn some money but they're both perfectly intelligent people who if they'd have been born a generation or two later would have gone to university i'm sure but that meant their whole aspirations were relatively modest. And as I may have mentioned, there were no books in the house. We didn't go to museums. We didn't go to the cinema or to concerts or the theatre or anything like that. It was a very kind of constrained out, outlook. And that made me – and I was the, – the big difference for me – was that when I was at my junior school in Sutton Coalfield, I was quite a bright kid. And one of my teachers said, oh, you should put in for the entrance exam of King Edward School in Birmingham, which was the sort of, you know, uh, high-performing school. And at that time, if you pass the entrance exam, it was free because my parents couldn't have afforded to send me to a fee-paying school. And that was the thing that opened my eyes academically Led me to want to go to university and study archaeology and all those sort of things. So, I, I think the, the the abiding passion through my life, including the PhD topic, was to try and remove some of the barriers to access and achievement and aspiration that I experienced in my own my own family.
2: And this is this is where the kind of going into the thesis and the kind of yeah. you know removing the barriers. And actually, you've kind of dedicated the best part of your working life to. Um, increasing accessibility for people who wouldn't necessarily ha- have those.
1: Yeah, have those yeah, that's been. Um, uh, I realise retrospectively that's been the thread going through my whole career. Yeah.
2: So and it started out with you know small you know collecting things and mm. you know collecting with your father mm. um, and not not a lot of kids will kind of have access to some of those things you know and yeah. have access to to be able to do those. So that's really mm. that's mm. really key. Your wife is director of the
1: Tate. She is. How does she influence you? <laughs> I think she's influenced me uh, to be bold and bolder. Um, she's somebody that kind of gets on with things. And you can see that <laughs> she's ended up being director of Tate as a result. So she's given me both courage and encouragement. I've only just thought those two might be related to go for things perhaps my natural and my familial background would be, you know, don't don't sort of put your head too far above the parapet. That was particularly my mother's voice. You know, don't draw attention to yourself too much. Mm-hmm. But she's kind of uh, made me uh, uh, get over that, I suppose. And we've been mutually... I mean, she's massively supported me in the development of my career and we've tested ideas out on each other. So we've we've been, I suppose, mutually supportive.
2: Does she um, influence some of the work that you're sort of doing with the Horniman and kind of, does she have a... A kind of influence
1: on that yeah and I I think we probably influence each other both ways but certainly because of her massive connections within the art world both when we were both in Manchester and now latterly in London I have found I'm very passionate about working with contemporary artists as a way of introducing new perspectives and potentially new audiences into museums and that's one of the things that um I've started to do in a modest way at the Horniman and want to, uh, you know, increase even even further. I think I've influenced her on uh, areas around sustainability and the environment as well. And, you know, that's being played out at, at Tate to a certain extent as well.
0: So you're also a father. We wondered how you, over the years, have combined your career with raising your children.
1: Yeah. Um, well, people often talk about work-life balance, but um, with... Maria and myself having four kids between us, we were on on a second marriage each, it was more about how we just manage coping, you know, uh, particularly with travelling between different places uh, and actually having, you know, fairly demanding jobs. So um, we developed a phrase called work-life integration. And what that really meant was taking turns to do the childcare, trying to balance our calendars so that we went both out late at night And with, you know, nobody to look after the kids, bringing in support networks where we could, although both moving to Manchester where we didn't really know anybody. That was, you know, had to be built up from from scratch Um, and actually integrating the kids into the work. So, you know, bringing the kids along to private views and openings such that our colleagues knew them, artists and other people, you know, got to know them. And they're sort of part of the wider package that you get, I suppose, with the both of us. Not easy, by any means. The good thing about being a director or chief executive is that you get to set the tone a bit. And so healthy, integrated living was a really important part of our work. And we we still don't do a lot of late nights and weekend working where we can. Children are all grown up now, so we can we can go out in the evening to private views and so on, but it's not a, a fundamental part. So the, the sort of long hours ethos that's sometimes seen as a sign of uh, real commitment in the cultural sector isn't something we have any truck with. It's about working effectively in the time available rather than working a long, long time.
0: Can you tell us about some of your favourite museums to visit?
1: Well, funnily enough, I mean, the, the, it's a bit like in many uh, specialist areas, sometimes you end up... If I go to some museum, say of of history or anthropology or natural history, I end up looking at the lighting and the the case fittings and <laughs> yeah. and the, the, the technical the, details, the font size of the labels, and it kind of slightly spoils it. So, actually, some of my my, my, my uh, favorite things are art galleries because I don't have, I have, as I said, I have great interest in contemporary art and contemporary artists, but I'm slightly less on duty there. So. One of my favourite places has always been Kettle's Yard in Cambridge, and and that's just that's a guilty secret really because I'm all about access as I've said, and the the point of Kettle's Yard is that not too many people go to it because it's it's a very intimate small experience where you get very close to art um, mostly without any any barriers. But I love some of the traditional museums. I went to the Sir John Soane's Museum the other day, which is a kind of antiquarian fantasy. I love the Petrie Museum at UCL. Some of these more hidden away ones, because in a way, being in being in the, the 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 sector, I have more of a sort of specialist connoisseurial uh, interest in the sort of slightly more obscure ones. The really great museums, though, are in in the UK are some of the nationals and some of the great regionals like Glasgow, Birmingham, Liverpool, the World Museum, Liverpool, and the other Liverpool museums. But there are some fantastic museums all over the world now. I haven't really travelled to China to see some of the big new ones, but the Melbourne Museum, which I went to a few years ago, was a brand-spanking-new, fabulous museum that integrates nature and culture and so on. So one of the big phenomena, I think, of the last 25 years has been the continued growth and expansion of museums as parts of the leisure and tourism as well as the education and informal learning uh, sectors.
0: And um, we've just got a few final questions about the Horniman. Can you tell us, do you have a favourite artefact in the Horniman?
1: Ah, yes. Well, that's <clears> – <throat> I, I think I'd have to say, not the walrus, uh, because <laughs> that's <enough>. that's everybody's <laughs> well-known one, but the uh, passenger pigeon, which um, is an example of – You may know that the passenger pigeon used to be one of the most numerous birds in the world, but flocks used to take practically a day to go past in North America. It was what pigeon pie was made of. And the last one died in Chicago Zoo in the 1920s because they were hunted to extinction. So it's it's a really good example of not taking anything for granted when Mm. it comes to species and their sustainability.
2: I had another question about Lewisham being awarded Borough of Culture, and you're a, you're a big part of the Horniman, a big part of um, working with the bid Um, and we'll be doing some work over the current over the next year can you tell us a little bit about the work you'll be doing with
1: yeah so um we uh helped lewisham as as did many other cultural organizations uh formulate their their bid to be london borough of culture next year and we were absolutely delighted when they were awarded it fantastic well Well, it's credit to them rather than us but um uh, we're we're the biggest cultural uh, institution in the borough so we hope to be playing quite a major role so we're just discussing uh, the details of it um we're certain Helping them with a climate festival because our own work, increasing work on the climate and ecological emergency, puts us in a good position to do that, and we've obviously got the space as well. Uh, and similarly, we're helping them with their music program uh, again because of our own spaces and our, our collections. So we're just work, we're just meeting uh, over the next couple of weeks just to begin to hammer out what the program will actually be. But my understanding is that the, the whole borough of culture programme starts from January next year and runs through the whole year, uh, with with some of the high points, of course, being over the summer, particularly in relation to the outdoor activities. But no, it's a really exciting opportunity, to, once in a generation at yeah. least, to put the local borough really on the map.
2: So Nick, you've got lots of things coming up um, over the course of the year at the Horniman. Is there anything particularly you want to touch on that uh, you'd like people to know about?
1: Well, People probably already know about our blockbuster show, Permian Monsters, uh, Life Before before Dinosaurs. So do come along to that if you uh, haven't uh, been already. But there's something I'm very excited about coming up in October, which is called 696. Now, it'd be interesting how many... People know what that means, uh, because I didn't. Uh, I don't either. 696 is the number of a police order to close down music venues that was allegedly disproportionately used to close down black music venues, in, in London in particular. And it's called that because we've decided as part of trying to diversify our audience and particularly appeal to adults, young adults, as well as uh, more ethnically diverse audiences, to build on our musical instrument collections, which is one of the best in the world, and try and make links with young adults who are really interested in music, but not visiting the Horniman, possibly because they're interested in genres like grime, Afrobeat, New London Jazz, and so on. So we've got a programme, which we're calling South London Music 696 which uh, we've just had this week a call out for artists who are going to come in, be in residence in the Horniman, be exposed to our collections, hear some of the weird and wonderful sounds they make, and make new work. And that will culminate next year, next summer, in a music festival. But in October, we've got an exhibition all about Uh, South London, new music of these different genres, which we hope will be a sort of mixed media thing, museum type exhibition, but a lot of sound, a lot of interaction. And we hope it'll introduce the Horniman to a whole range of new audiences who don't come at the moment. Sounds really exciting.
0: Sounds really great. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Pleasure. It's been a really interesting conversation. Thank Thank you. Thank you. We recorded this episode just at the start of the corona outbreak
2: when the museum was still open. Sadly, the Crossing Borders event that Nick talked about had to be postponed. However, we really hope that the other events that he mentions later in the year will still go ahead.
0: Moona and I hope you enjoyed our chat with Nick today. We were both so impressed by his deep knowledge of his subject and also his enthusiasm, particularly with wanting to engage with young people at the Horniman. What struck me
2: from the conversation with Nick is his dedication to making the Horniman really accessible to people from all walks of life. And I think he's doing that really well by engaging local people and getting them to deliver workshops and you know be a part of the museum so that people see themselves in the spaces.
0: If you want to find out more about the Horniman, please check out their website and they're also on Instagram at Horniman Museum Gardens.
2: If you have any comments, feedback or suggestions, we'd really love to hear from you. If you could rate and review, that would be really fantastic. And if you want to get in touch, we are on Instagram at Portrait of a Londoner. And we're on Facebook. And you can also email us, Londoner at gmail.com. This episode was produced by Mike Swain. Thanks again for listening.